Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bonds, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Maria, who is CEO of All Life. Um, Good morning, Maria. How are you? Thank you, Alex. I'm very well. Thank you. Good, good. Um, we're going to have some funny uh, footage to share, actually, beforehand that we recorded, because um, uh, what people don't know that are listening in is what an absolute circus we've both made of getting lighting right. <laughs> I, I, I said I, I'm recording from a cinema, uh, which is a really terrible place to record it. And it sounds really fancy, but um, it's very small um, and badly lit cinema, which isn't good for this. But anyway, I digress. Um, really excited to speak to you uh, today. I met one of your team, uh, ITI in New York, um, fascinated by the story that you've got have got before i make a bad job of explaining what wall life do maria it'd be wonderful if you could introduce yourself and, and the wall life business for sure alex thank you very much um wall life is a startup and is an insure tax startup so what we do the core of what we do our mission is to identify new risks which might be associated and generated by either new technologies or scientific progress We came to this conclusion that technology is speeding up. It's so fast and is accelerating every day. So we have new applications every day in our hands or on our phones. But what we don't have is enough time to look at what are the risks associated with those technology. There is no time. And therefore, there is always the risk behind the the corner that we might have some downside uh, scenario and we're not protected. So this is what the core of what World Life does. Okay, amazing. And I think that's like thematically, that's where sort of InsureTech appears to be going. You know, if, if we talk about the different phase of InsureTech and, you know, a lot of it was really focused on distribution. But the stuff that I'm really excited about is, is looking at all these kind of emerging risks, genuinely emerging risks that we were unaware of. Um, and even some of the kind of just, just, uh, products we were unaware of. I mean, like Gaia is a really good example, like fertility treatment um, and, and an insurable kind of risk involved in that. No one had kind of seen that, but there seems to be a lot of excitement. But but all of you appear to have like taken a bigger challenge in, in, in sort of going, right, we're going to 
how does it work in practical terms? Because I, I sort of understand the mission, but it's almost like you're running an R and D lab for new risks in the insurance space. Uh, but then, do you, do you operate as an MGA? What's what's the kind of like business model from that perspective? Yeah, we, we, we do operate as an MGA from a technical perspective. So we're not a full stack um, insurance mm -hmm. business. Um, this is at least the starting point because we really want to be focused on the product innovation side, as you said. And it's mm -hmm. not an easy mission um, because, you know, you have a lot of things going on and you are sometimes a little tempted to chase something that is cool and maybe, you know, that is... You know, yeah, exactly. And it's trendy. Um, but we don't chase scientific speculation. We trust and rely on data. So what mm -hmm. we do, the first thing that we do is to have a quite broad and deep uh, preliminary data analysis on what are really the risks associated with certain applications. And before we go on to the next stage, which is deep dive on those technologies and really understand what are the risks and the use cases um, but one thing that is important is that we have an internal team, an innovation team, like, like a lab, what you just said. But we also realized we cannot be expert on everything, right? It's impossible. There are so many things. Um, so what we do is that we partner with um, technology providers or scientific teams or universities, for example, so when we, after we realize that there is something interesting to explore in one of the area that we want to research on, then we go deep dive and we find the right partner to, to be specific, right? To be uh, to, like specialist of that specific application. So in mm -hmm. a sense, it's a sort of an open innovation type of process mm -hmm. um, that we're still obviously, you know, improving and, and fine tuning. But I think this is really the core of our research part. Um, mm. And this is how we get interested in trends, which are maybe today they're a niche, maybe today they're small, or they're very small perceived, but tomorrow they might explode and become a big, a big mm. trend. Mm. It's, it, I think it's such a fascinating model, and uh, I, I hate to make it all about capacity, but I'm really interested about how that capacity relationship works, because normally, if you were running an MGA, you, you, you'd come up with a very specific product or, or set of products that are related to each other, and then you'd propose that to an insurer and they might provide capacity. But you're essentially, I presume you've got a sort of more open capacity relationship and you're saying, we'll come up with some products. We don't know what they are yet, but we're going to come up with some products. How does that how does that work from a capacity arrangement? Yeah, believe me, that challenge was first with investors, but we're going to talk about this later. Sure. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to say, you know, we had an amazing roadmap, but we don't know exactly which products we're going to have. So that was a challenge too. Uh, yeah, so, so to your point, is a challenge from a capacity perspective. So we really have to look for partners which are open-minded and really mm -hmm. embrace product innovation. What I think we find very interesting is, you know, we never received like a no-go, like every um, risk area we interviewed for, for Pangai with us was genuinely interested in what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, some people or some firms are more risk adverse or they would like to see some traction before they actually commit. Some mm -hmm. others are more, you know, inclined to, to really, you know, support our um, our exploration, let's say, on, on product innovation. So, but effectively, we bring in new business 
So I think that this is really the, the key point, right? We're not cannibalizing with any other business because it's new products and therefore the opportunity to really sell more products to the same customer base might be appealing. So that's how we get engaged. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it comes back to the collaboration um, aspect, doesn't it? Which obviously is there with all capacity relationships. But um, it, I think just it's a really interesting proposition of almost externalizing some of the product innovation. Um, and it's interesting to see. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall of those conversations about who sees this as a really positive approach and, and, and you know, which insurers and carriers are a little bit slower to, to get on board. Um, I wanted to, um, I've started by ignoring all of the questions, which is something that I've started Sorry. to do. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go back to them and, and, and uh, behave myself and, and, and stick to the script a little bit. So I, I did want to know how you stay ahead of, of, of insuring against the emerging and unknown risks, because yeah, there's lots of people really trying to look at this, but what what's your main challenge is sort of being ahead of things like genetic manipulation, biohacking? Yeah, what are the sort of main challenges you focus when trying to get ahead of the curve on these risks? Yeah, so let, let me first remind, what are the three key in research area we're investigating at the moment at this stage? Mm -hmm. uh, one is, as you said, is genetics. So the protection of the biological identity. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one is the biometric, which means basically the protection of your digital identity, because we have a lot of biometric credentials in our life today. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is the what we call biohacking. It specifically is technology um, connected to healthcare. It can be in your body or outside your body, but mm -hmm. will transmit and let's say process healthcare, health data, which are very important for all of us. So one of the challenge we have, sometimes we struggle to find partners um, to deep dive on some of those risks, um, let's say use cases. And the reason for that is because somebody might think that by sharing the risks um, they face, um, for example, within their technology, might look like a little bit of a weakness um, and therefore they are less inclined to share. But I'll give you a specific example, which is one of our you know, main area of research, which is exactly is um, a connected technology for healthcare. Mm -hmm. It's called uh, uh, Internet of Medical Things. And it's a huge trend. In two, by 2026, the forecast is that we're going to have 7 million devices connected. And wow. as you can appreciate, anything that is connected to a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth is, uh, is in danger, right? It uh, has a vulnerability. So we would like to partner, for example, with technology providers or clinical hospitals, whoever is handling those devices to really understand what are the use cases, what are the risks. And there is a data which we cannot ignore, which the number of incident and data breach in the healthcare system is huge. Mm. We, we found research that said that uh, 24 million health records have been exposed somehow to hackers wow. and scammers. So there is a potential risk there, but I think there, it's a little bit difficult and challenging to find somebody who openly share with us data and the vulnerability and the weaknesses, which I find a little short-sighted because what mm. we can do is actually to increase the and mitigate those risks and also to protect individuals so that they can really embrace technology without the fear, right, of being hacked or 
being vulnerable. So I think for users, it will be way better that somebody will look into those risks and find solutions as opposed to don't look at all and pretend everything is totally fine. <laughs> so that's the challenge. But that, I think that's a... That's a broad challenge, isn't it? With with, I, th I think generally speaking, emerging risks because I think the default setting of just human beings is to kind of ignore it and hope it goes away. You know, it's like finding, you know, it, it, it's like the first kind of stages of being unwell. You you kind of go, I'm sure it will be fine in 48 hours later, and then 48 hours later, you're half your legs hanging off, and you have to go to the hospital. But um, you know, it's it's that kind of ignore it, hope it goes away. But um, I can see that because it's kind of it's allowing the businesses to be vulnerable. It's a, it's a risk even, it's a reputational risk in, in kind of admitting that there is a the challenge there. So yeah, I can understand how that's a huge challenge. Um, we talk about innovation a lot on, on the podcast as a sort of big part of what we look at. And when you're ensuring unknown risks, innovation is clearly uh, imperative to what you do. How do you go about building a team? I wanted to kind of understand about the team that you've got there, how you build a team and how you build a sort of culture that fosters innovation. This is a, this is a very, uh, you know, important question to me because we come from innovation. Our background as a, as a team uh, was always like about innovative companies. I was personally, in, uh, you know, CFO at companies, which I would say they were disruptors in a sense in their respective segment of the market. So mm. we, we do care innovation a lot. And there is not the right recipe. It's very complicated, like to get the right team, the right approach, the right process. We tried many things in, in my career, tried many different, I'd say, model, but it's not, there is not a perfect solution. It's probably more tailor-made, it's perfect. It can be right in a certain stage of the company. It can be wrong in a different stage, if you know mm. what I what I mean, but one key things that I found common across all the experiences and the um, the trial uh, we've been exploring uh, is definitely to have a diverse team. And when I say diverse, I'm a woman, a woman CEO, so it might be easy for me to just say, you know, diverse means equal, you know, uh, feminine and masculine. But but the reality is that it's, there is so much more about diversity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. we, for example, at World Life, we do care a lot about age diversity. And the reason for that is because if you wanna really bring to market something new, you have to be able to talk to a broader audience, right? You cannot yeah. just see the world on one perspective only. It's, it would be really um, not in line with our mission of, uh, let's say, uh, boosting awareness around risks uh, so mm. risks are perceived in different ways from you know a younger consumer versus a, a older consumer and especially when it's about technology related risks um, for a young consumer might be completely different so this is why we have a team we, we're building a team which really ranges between 18 years old to 70 years old and we have a team which brings to the table different perspective, different view to use technology, maybe different use cases and applications of the same technology. Uh, and this is how we learn and we test ourselves, some of mm. the risk and perspectives. So mm. um, that, that's, that's a very uh, interesting experiment, I would say that we are, we're carrying on. 
Yeah, that, that the age diversity things, I think it's a really important point. I think it's something that we've been quite bad at in insurance. Um, I've always kind of felt that we've lost people from the industry um, and we haven't always passed that knowledge on. The sort of knowledge transfer has been quite weak. Um, I'm a big fan of kind of pairing like people at the sort of later stage of their career with people at the early stage of the career for that knowledge transfer. But some around startups, is that's I think it's a super important point. I mean, I we talk about startups being, you know, looking a bit like me there's sort of people that get funding like white middle-aged guys that, that tend to tend to get over sort of indexed in terms of funding but then actually if you look at the teams that people put together they're very similar in age and you know there's this kind of thing of people being innovative at the earliest stage of their career and there's a truism of that I think you are a bit more open typically um, but that's such a blanket statement and 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 also it kind of doesn't it doesn't allow you to bring all the knowledge sets that you need because because people that are from different industries at different stages of it's and it, and as you say they look at risks in a different way your perception of risk is different and um so i think it's a really important point and something that i don't see other startups addressing at all yeah i have to tell you it's so i'd say i'm learning so much from 18 years old you know um yeah people yeah because um because they use different technologies or they use it in a different way. So if you look at my phone and the phone of an 18 years old person will be totally different, different yeah, applications, yeah. different yeah. ways, different styles. So it's so important. And quite frankly, you, you have to you know, come visit us once, but it's also very, I'll say culturally and intellectually interesting because you can really put together in a room people with different backgrounds and different ages and you know, it's not necessarily true that the 70 years old person will teach the 18 years old person. Sometimes it goes vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. so fascinating. It's really cool. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point um, because, you know, my colleague Sophie is, is, a, is uh, just post-university and she just looks at things in a different way and and sometimes i'm really stuck in doing something and it's it takes the person to go well why are you doing it like that or are you aware of this new technology um just even in my personal life i'm slightly obsessed with the uh the, the b reels a new kind of social media app i don't know if you've seen that right but um yes, yes i saw it but the, the the uptake in in people using that is is much younger in profile, um, and it's really interesting. It, it's kind of like it's starting to take into case. Okay, so just just the technology people use in their daily lives. So therefore, their risk exposure is so different. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that as we're talking about the diff different age profiles. In like how important is it to consider different age ranges, diverse age range when assessing risks um, that we're looking at. Yeah, it's so for us, it's really core. So, for example, back to the point I was making, like we look at data a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so, we had a specific survey around, you know, the perception of risks at different ages, different, you know, demographic um, attributes. And it's not a surprise that obviously, for in, in the range between 18 and, and 25 years old, uh, users are more afraid or they, let's say, more concerned about social media or being you know for example the profile being hacked or mm. pictures being stolen or reputation for example being you know 
jeopardized. So this is for younger users. But when you move up to the 55-ish um, users, then it's about digital payments and it's mm -hmm. about the bank account and it's about mm -hmm. privacy. So it's a completely different set and it's the same technology, right? Because we're talking about the same, more or less the same technology. So it's the digital technology, but but at the end of the day, they, they you know, it's very different the risk um, mm -hmm. perceived by one or the other. What we found really surprising is that we thought, I mean, I thought that younger users will be more aware of risks and will be more like say tech savvy. Um, mm -hmm. So that will be wiser in using technology and potentially less inclined to get trapped in a phishing attempt or like this matter, right? <laughs> so, so that's what I was thinking is actually not the case. The young consumer pool is because they're using so many applications and social media, which is more vulnerable um, sometimes. So, so they tend to be actually a primary goal and target for hackers and scammers. So they tend to have a lot of, um, you know, very high risk. Um, and they're not necessarily the 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 ones that they engage with more protections or cybersecurity best practices. So this is the point, right? It's a very important point for us. We learn from those um, surveys uh, that we have to talk to young consumers and to more, I'd say, seasoned consumers in a completely different way. Mm -hmm. We have to boost uh, awareness for both of the classes, but in a different way because obviously for a young consumers will more relate to a reason with, with them more about, you know, the social media and the, you know, security of their profile. While for older consumers, we can, for example, talk about banking systems and FinTech. So, and you can also think about using different communication tools because they mm -hmm. talk different languages. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a very important point of what we do. Mm. It's really interesting, actually, because I think I think about the the media, the role the media has to play in that. Because if if you, if you thought who was at risk from like phishing scams, you would assume it's just basically older people. You know, it's like my parents. I, I worry about my parents for getting scammed all the time. I never worry about me getting scammed. <laughs> and it's that kind of, uh, my exposure is is so much higher because I use so much more technology. I mean, my parents are the people that just, they turn their mobile phones off when they're at home because they're like, well, I'm at home. You phone the phone, you know, the home phone. And they're still that generation that they're not as engaged at all, all times. Whereas I think about, um, yeah, just the level of exposure. I mean, even in my exactly. own life. That's the point, right? That older people are less exposed. They use less technology. So yeah. the, it's yeah, yeah. true when you're saying that they might be less expert, but they use less. So the risk is smaller. While the younger consumer, they use a lot. So yeah. you know, the, the, the probability of getting some problems is, is just higher. And it's that thing of of um I was I was I was watching this program about, about extreme sports and 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 there's a risk where um, they talked about free divers and people that um, free fall parachute jump a lot. And they said one of the risks is that they get so used to doing it that um, apparently this happens with people that parachute is that they forget to pull the parachute cord just because they're so comfortable with the risk of jumping out of a plane that they forget to fall it and they and they and, and it's one of the risks. It's overexposure to risk. So if you to think about people using technology so much at a young age, 
you are unaware of the risks because you're so comfortable using the technology whereas if you if that technology came into your life at a later generation then you start with the kind of skepticism and uh, you start from that point because it's new technology and then so you're always going to hold a healthy respect for the risk um, whereas if you're born into it it's going to be very different so yeah it's really interesting to see how that profile changes um uh, I want to change gears slightly. We, we touched on this earlier, actually, about funding um, when we were talking about capacity. And, and you said that um, you had to walk VCs through the, the, the kind of model in a slightly different way. So, you know, you just raised a series A. I think it was, was it 12 million euros? Or was it 12 million euros, yeah. Yeah, 12 million euros, which is a pretty good round, especially in the current environment. So, you know, it's one of the largest funding rounds in the European insurtech space. So, so what was that journey like? Talk us through that kind of, was it was it challenging? Did, did people understand the model? What did you come up against in terms of challenges? Uh, I have to say that, so one step back is, um, so we had a seed uh, round uh, before it, in, uh, we closed it uh, by August 2021. And that process uh, was really, you know, was tapping into our network. And so more like, I wouldn't call it family and friends, but more like a, a professional network and, yeah. and financial network. Um, and, but what, what was very interesting is everybody, when, when we talk about those risks and we say, you know, have you ever thought about this and that? And what is fascinating is that everybody is in his life or maybe in his family had some exposure to those risks. And so, you know, the reaction you have is, oh, wow, yeah, I had a similar experience and I never thought an insurance coverage was available for those mm -hmm. things. So it, it's very, it gets really personal in a sense when you give a pitch because we're talking about our lives uh, and we talk about things that we do every time, every day, hundreds of times a, a day, like opening your phone with your face ID. That's something we do every day, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so this was the first, uh, the first seed round, and it, we really found a lot of people really embraced the the mission. Um, but obviously, it was more related to I would say our broader network. So to see the validation of our idea um, by such a large round led by one of the primary Italian VC was really important to us because this mm. is not anymore about, you know, people who knows us or like us, but, but it was more about a financial and um, institutional investor, which really makes us feel this is a validation of, of our mission. Um, the journey was very interesting because, to be honest, we always like we as soon as we started, we found very good uh, chemistry with the, the VC that, um, you know, uh, is the leader of this round. So we didn't scout for a lot of other leaders. We scout obviously for other institutional investors who also are joining this uh, this round. But I think what is was very interesting is, to your point earlier, like a little bit of journey was to make sure was clear that we would also waste time let's be honest like when you do research it's not wasting time ever because you're going to learn you're going to put data on your storage and you're going to learn how to do certain things so but we have to be aware that not all the explorations and scouting that we're gonna you know we're gonna fund they're gonna lead to a product sometimes mm -hmm. that will not be product right because mm -hmm. maybe the risk is is too high maybe cannot be mitigated yet maybe you know it's so there are there are risks that we're not going to be able to to ensure 
And in this case, it's important that the investor will, you know, really embrace that mission because they have to be aware that there are certain things that would not be commercially viable. And this is uh, this is exactly what we found. We found somebody. All our investors are really totally, um, I would say, signed up and committed to you know fund also. Um, pure research i would say uh, part of the business of course they also want to see some results <laughs> that's for sure um but but it, i think this is the most important thing that we really uh want to make sure was clear and we really want to make sure that you know we were on the same page if you know sure yeah i mean that's that's the thing i think i gave your <laughs> fairly bad i gave your colleague in new york quite a hard time about this because i i didn't get it to sell it because the the, the balance that i is exactly as you just said is that so you've got to research first create insurance products second but you don't have these kind of vanilla run-of-the-mill products that are making you money so, it, so it's almost like you're you're running like an innovation open innovation lab that an insurance company would do on its own um if i think of like you know george Beatty from Beasley, he runs the innovation um, side of, of Beasley's underwriting. They get to look at new products, but they're they're funded by the core business of Beasley, which is running the you know the property casualty all that. But you don't have that that. So it's the balance of researching, but you need to generate products because they need to generate income. So how do you how do you balance that, or is it just making sure that you've got such a good team that you know you're going to come up with something? I, I, I'm intrigued about that sort of balance between driving consistent income versus constantly innovating. This is a, this is a very you know important question to me because this is also how we balance ourselves in terms of team. So um, the World Life Chairman, who is Fabius Bianchi, and is you know the founder as well of the of, of World Life. Um, is he used to say that he is the let's say protector uh, of the original idea, which is you know really go scout for new risks, uh, whether or not they're gonna be let's say a big mass market event or not. But it's really more about finding what's the use case, what's the application, what's the data around those risks, and how we can mitigate and eventually you know ensure now or in the future. So he's a little bit the element that helps us to keep us. I would say um, imbalance or away from let's go just on the commercial and make money and have products that will sell forever. Um, while I would say there is more, my role as a CEO is really to balance those two approach, right? So yeah. we have also like our first product, it, which is more about cybersecurity. Like this is some, it's it's a protection for your biometric credentials, so basically your digital identity, and this is on the personal line side it's not on the commercial because we realize that the commercial line is actually failing to protect individuals they're not going to give back money to the individuals who lost their data they're going to just protect the business and therefore we think that there is a a good um a good segment of the market that can be approached by you know taking the other side of the of the uh, equation and making sure that individuals be, be protected as well. So mm. this is, I would say, a, a product that can be, you know, perceived and, and appreciated by, by consumers in the short term and mm -hmm. we're launching in September. But at the same time, we're scouting. And so we obviously we, we have to scout also for 
things which will take maybe three, five years to become a mass market. What is important is that we don't scout for things just because they're niche. We scout for risks which we believe that will become big in the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like that are part of a trend which is increasing. And I'll give you a very specific example. Our second product that we are launching uh, possibly by the end of this year is the protection for your, the umbilical cord. So the stem cells that will be stored wow. in a biobank. Now this, you might think, okay, that's all for parents who, or future parents who would love to, you know, store the, the, the umbilical cord of their children and have it in a biobank. But effectively the, you know, the progress in the scientific community is looking for additional applications for stem cells. So they might become a trend, which is not just for newborn, but it's mm. also for, for adults. And so this is why we're investing time and resources on this one, because mm. we think that this is gonna become much bigger in the future with a wider application. So that's an example of how we mitigate, right? We have products which are, I would say, more closer to our daily life, and products which we think that will become closer to our life, maybe at some point in the future. And that's why we're investing on those. On those yeah, it's, it's, it's such an interesting model because it's almost like you're, um, you're building a portfolio, like a venture portfolio. You know, you're venturing these kind of more run-of-the-mill risks that have a more instant application broadly. And then you've got, this could be a huge market, this stem cell, but but you're right, we won't know for three to sort of four or five years. Um, yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. I, um, uh, I I wanted to ask you about the impact of, because you've seen all the data, uh, what was the impact when we shifted towards a much more remote world? Presumably the exposure's gone up dramatically. Is, is there any kind of other than it going up, are there any kind of like trends that sort of happened that either surprised or interested you, you as, as a business? Yeah, to, to, well, yes, for sure. I would say in general, the whole digital transformation trend, which started even before the pandemic, mm. um, but brought a lot of new applications, like the one we're using now, right? Yeah, yeah, quite, and, quite, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, Zoom did quite well out of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I heard of Zoom before pandemic, but quite frankly, like today is my daily, you know, uh, tool and application. So obviously the COVID uh, pandemic uh, really accelerated on certain, on in general, the digital uh, transformation. And therefore we have now a much bigger increase of, uh, you know, not just work remote, uh, for, you know, tools to work remotely, but also digital payments, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, now, all of this, is a fantastic opportunity for hackers um, because we can see like the the, the level of um, certain practice or malpractice like fishing for example went up really to the roof and Italy by the way is one of the countries which has been most affected I don't know whether we believe more in people we trust people more so we click on links I don't know what it is but yeah. definitely we are we really one of the countries which has been affected the most um, but even malware, um, there is a research that shows that malware during pandemic increased by 230% in Europe. So wow. you can appreciate uh, how big is the problem. And this we're talking about you know, across all Europe. 
But one thing that is for sure is going to stay is that we're going to work remotely for quite a while, probably forever. And there is a research that says that 89% of people will actually continue to have a little hybrid um, work environment. So all of those tools, um, you know, they again, they expose us to risks. And so we are looking at, obviously, as I said before, uh, about protecting the, um, the, the, the digital identity of a person, which, is, um, which has different touch points, because you have your digital identity, like your data, your pictures, your privacy, your profile. And this is more important, I would say, appealing for young consumers. So that's how we talk to them. And our product will have a specific, um, I would say we twist the product to be really kind of a protection for social media. Mm-hmm. And now we have for, you know, more, more seasoned consumers, um, more the banking side and the fraudulent payments and credit cards or payments um, system. So this is more for, uh, for a different audience, but we're still searching. I mean, we haven't finished yet. That's just the beginning of a journey because mm-hmm. then you can think about you know, your, your connected home security, you can think about your um, keyless car security, you can think mm-hmm. about a lot mm-hmm. of other applications that we're, we're still in the process of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, researching. I, the stuff about, you know, the personal cyber, you know, the, the policies, I think I wouldn't have even considered like two years ago, um, even for someone that's really exposed, um, because I use technology, I've, I've worked from home for, um <laughs> I've worked from home before it was cool. <laughs> I, I, I worked from, work from home for about eight years and on and off or flexible working and, and had office space. So I, I rely on digital connectivity. Um, and so, but I just think it's my mind has shifted because I'm so aware now of the risk. Obviously, it doesn't help that I do a podcast talking about risk and insurance. And so, therefore, your exposure to it. But I definitely think even someone that knew the industry would not have taken it up. But now I'm looking at getting my own personal cyber cover because of the, the the impact on my life i'm probably in the older category i'm probably more worried about kind of like banking and transactions and all of that that sort of stuff but then i do worry about reputational risk which is something i've never kind of worried about before um you know I, I, i'm still that generation i'm so pleased that i don't have social media from my early 20s and like you know the pictures I, i'm glad don't exist in the world but, but um, you know the reputation can be a, a big risk it can be also financial damage like for people course. exposed and people who works with social media for example mm. um this is obviously a, a you know influencers or i'd say you know in general the more social community is is really exposed and that's that's why we're looking at um, you know those trends as well and what is interesting is about new trends uh, that we are obviously studying you know we're looking at metaverse we're looking at artificial intelligence is that the combination of those technologies that really can create um, a completely different level of category which is really kind of putting your identity at risk, but your mm-hmm. deep identity. So really mm-hmm. like with deep fakes, um, they're not really accurate, like mm-hmm. totally accurate. There was a, a very interesting case where a deep fake was run through a banking system to authorize an incredibly high amount of, you know, wire transfer. Wow. And wow. that was lost forever. And it was a voice, a voice deep fake. Wow. So, you know, you you sh- you think you're safe if your bank will call you to double check that it's really you and mm-hmm. you really want to, you know, do that wire transfer. But then you realize that this can be hacked as well. 
Mm. I got a call from a bank actually this week because uh, I'm moving house. We've talked about mortgages and stuff, and they did the classic thing: they phone you and have to run you through security. But because this, the process is not the same for every financial institution, you know, you suddenly go, I've answered all these questions, but this could just be a, this could be someone hacking me. I, 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 all my like, data to yeah, they're just going, yeah, I'll answer all these questions. So thankfully it was my bank, but I was thinking, well, these are the questions I would ask if I was trying to hack you anyway. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm scaring myself now. <laughs> just double check it. <laughs> double check it was my bank. Um uh, oh, uh, something I meant to ask because I've not asked about distribution. What's the what's the distribution model for via brokers? Is it is it direct to consumer? Uh, how how's the distribution handled? Well, we are primarily focused on the the B two B to C type of. Yep. Um, this those are not products which are let's say uh, you're gonna look for maybe at some point after um, sure. you know the awareness will be there and after we you know we have more education about those risks which is part of our mission, by the way. And I really believe this is also, I'd say, part of the social mission of an insurance, right? Is just to make people aware of the risk, not just about selling products in the first place. Um, but, but obviously, you know, we also, we know that this, those are products that they are more, I'd say, attached to other main products. Um, so that, um, that is the, the main strategy is to, you know, go sell the products to, through other channels and mm -hmm. primarily other, I'd say, traditional channel for insurance like uh, brokers or, or bank insurance um, or um, uh, what we call affinity channels. So uh, other businesses like telco or device producer, which might have an appetite for, you know, offering something to the users and consumers to in enhance in a sense their protection um, mm. and it's a it's a sort of a win-win if you think about it because you know if you use your application and the technology you're selling a safer way then even you know the the producer of the back technology will kind of have a little more reputational you know profile or in general will have a, a better that's a customer experience. So, so that's that's the way we we primarily want to sell. Um, we're sure. gonna have like a, a direct to consumer feature. Like it's gonna be online on a website, but we we don't think this is gonna be at least for now. It's not gonna be the main the main. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's 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 too difficult distribution channel, especially at the early stages. I, I, I'd imagine. Um, um, I, I, final question, really conscious of your time. So, um, you know, obviously you work a lot with third party tech businesses, collaboration with like advanced sensor data, biometric data. Um, I know this is a particular area of expertise for you. I, I kind of wanted to sort of, you know, put your future thinking hat on and, and are there really some particularly exciting innovations at the moment that you're conscious of in the, in the third party supplier space? Yeah, so, so what I was mentioning earlier, we, we are really looking at a couple of things at the moment, um, for new waves of products, so not something that will go online in 2022, probably yeah. not even in 2023, um, is more is, you know, the whole virtual reality metaverse. Um, I, we think that this is very interesting because as we said, they can expose us and we tested ourselves. So one of the key things that we have to do is test ourselves what the technology is about. So we had our first, uh, if the first Italian board meeting uh, on a metaverse. So we had wow. our, our Kulos on, we were completely in different rooms. And I have to say that it was impressive how immersive is the, the virtual reality and the fact that it's much more interactive um, compared to the Zoom. Because in mm. the Zoom call, 
you don't see a person in his eyes. You look at your camera. So it's very yeah. difficult to look at, to make sure you have eye contact. In the metaverse, interesting enough, you do have eye contact. I personally experienced a high contact. So it's completely different. Obviously, there are risks associated with, you know, the identity of, of a person on the metaverse, the wallets on the metaverse that can be, again, stolen. Um, there, there are already several cases. Um, there is also, I would say, a more health-related type of risk uh, associated with the loss of, uh, I would say, you know, sense of reality. Mm. Um, and quite frankly, which you can have if you use it for, for many, many hours a day. So, mm. so we're studying all of this. Uh, the other trend that we're looking at is robotic. So, and, and this is fascinating because, um, you know, we, we used to think of robots as, you know, the future, you know, cleaning lady in a house that will make the coffee for us in the morning, which by the way, I love it. But uh, <laughs> I think we're far from there. But what is interesting is that robots are basically like drones or other, other you know, applications. They are really in our life today. Um, and so we are looking at what are the risks associated with, with the robotic in general, which might be hurtful, which might, might hurt somebody, might be hacked, might be stealing information. And again, we are experimenting uh, quite a lot in robotics as well. But that's, that's for like two to five years uh, more type of products. Uh, but it's really fascinating. And this is how, you know, that we, this is really the, the, the interesting part is that we are partnering with companies which are also developing those applications. So that that's the interesting bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of picturing wall life. It's just the office is just lots of people playing with VR machines and, and robots and, and, and then being paid to do it. That's, that's it awesome. is. We have, we have our robot dog. Uh, I can tell you. <laughs> we have a lot of, uh, yeah, we have, we test things ourselves uh, because I think it's always interesting to have a first-hand experience before. Sure. Obviously, it's not th that part of the, it's just part of also for us to understand a little bit better. But obviously, then we we hand over to you know to the team, and uh, yeah. they're going to deep dive on on the research as well. I just had this thing of my 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 remote team, and I'm not going to get us an office. I'm just going to send everyone an Oculus Rift headset, and we can just do a couple of hours a day working together. But um, I, I think. I think we'd lose touch with reality. That that would be the thing. Um, so, yeah, it's it's, it's it's it is a risk to be honest. But yeah. I have to, yeah, it is a risk. But I think you know, after I tried, I think it's also very. It's much more collaborative than to be on Zoom. And one of the key things is that you cannot look at your phone. So you totally committed to what you're doing, sure. and so counterintuitively, you you lose reality, but you actually gain uh, focus. So. Interesting. I'm gonna to have to give it a go. Um, Maria, <laughs> you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much. I find I, I genuinely think it's a fascinating business um, and 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 the sort of true edge of innovation in insurtech. So um, I want to thank you for being a, a guest on the podcast, and and I'm really excited to see what you guys come up with next. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me. You're welcome. As always,
is this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.